Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant and nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person who knows that a sustainable and just future is possible. It just takes a lot, a lot, a lot of little actions and a few big actions. Later in the program, we're going to be joined by Ben Liniston. Uh, with the, uh, he's the Director of Rural Strategies and, Cli- and Climate Change with the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy, IATP. He recently authored an article on after a presidency of, from a guy who lost the popular vote by three million in 2016, and then went on to lose the popular vote by over seven million in 2020. Well, after this presidency, presidency, there is increased urgency. And Ben's going to be talking about the eight areas of focus the IETP is recommending to the Biden-Harris administration to transition our farming system to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, build climate resistant, resilience, and respond to the economic challenges facing farmers as part of a a way to create a more equitable economy. But before we talk to IATP, we're going to talk to Courtney Cheetah. She's with the Minnesota State Horticulture. And gardening, gardening is one of the many small but infinitely growing acts that we can do. So um, welcome uh, to Food Freedom Radio, Courtney. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thanks. And so um, give us a little bit again. You've been on the show before, but tell us a little bit again about your background. Yeah, so I um, I was a kid that was really interested in uh, sustainability and ecology and the environment, and that led me to um, explore horticulture in college and then uh, went on to like run a, a farm for many, many years and then uh, just earlier this year started working with the Minnesota State Horticultural Society. And so when you garden, like you planted one type of tomato? <laughs> um, you know, this summer I grew like 18 types, I think. I, I, which is a way cutting back from my farming days when I had six acres and I had a half acre of tomatoes and 95 varieties. So, you know, I'm, I'm trying to show restraint. <laughs> <laughs> 95 varieties down to 18. Well, you know, we all have to chill out a little bit, right? <laughs> so, yep, exactly. Uh, so, this, I mean, I like this idea of all these small ways we can change and this, this idea of growing our own food in the urban area. I mean, why would we want to do that when it's so cheap at the big box stores? Oh, it tastes so much better. And it's just, um, it's, it's fresher, it's more healthy, it has less food miles. It's, you know, from your backyard, it takes a lot less fossil fuels to produce um, in terms of transporting and all those kinds of things. Uh, you know how it's grown, so you know if, it, if there were anything sprayed on it or if it, you know, you can eliminate that completely if that's important, which is nice. So growing organically is really easy when you're doing it yourself. Yeah. And it feeds the pollinators and the soil? Yeah, exactly. So you can you can be building your soil. You can uh, be, you know, composting right next to your garden so it, it doesn't even, you know, you can complete that life cycle and add those nutrients back to your soil. Um, you know, having habitat for pollinators is so important, and that's definitely one of the, the easiest ways to really help make huge change just by providing that habitat for um, all the little creatures that, that trickle up into our whole ecosystem. So, And I know there's some wonderful research out there that if kids grow their own vegetables, they're more likely to eat vegetables. And we all know that if we ate more vegetables, we would have a healthier community. Definitely. I have, I can witness that firsthand where like, uh, before this year, my son never really liked green beans and now they're like <laughs> his favorite vegetable because he planted them. And, and unfortunately we planted like dragon tongue green beans and 
uh, yellow wax beans, and now we can't find those in the grocery store. And he's like, well, where are they, Mom? And I'm like, well, <laughs> we have to wait till next summer. Well, and so. wouldn't it, it wouldn't be wonderful to have, you know, um, well, this idea just kind of came to my mind. The, the founders in the city of Minneapolis thought it was so important to have a park within so many feet or so many um, blocks of every home. Why don't we have like green beans within so much reach of every kid? Of course, this would only happen in the summer, but to really make an effort to have that food because a kid just picks a bean off a plant and it's it's a wonderful, fun experience. Definitely. So making that connection is so important. So we have a couple of different things that we're working on to sort of make that happen and help people find gardens too. Um, we're doing a mapping project right now where we're mapping out all the, the gardens in Minnesota and the contact information for who to find um, for them. Um, and so that's something that people, if you have a garden, you could definitely get involved with in terms of uh, helping make those connections. Um, so we have a form that's on our website. It's the, the northerngardener.org backslash mapping dash project. Say that again. So it's on yeah. the name of your website and then where they find it on your website. Yeah, it's northerngardener.org. And there's actually a, a, a link to it right on the homepage, but it's also at the backslash just mapping dash project backslash at that northerngardener.org. And when do you, and so next spring you want people to be able to go to your website and see all the local gardens? Exactly. And find out, so if they want to, they want to join a community garden, they can find the ones nearest to them. They can find out how to get on the waiting list or, you know, get on the, get on, sign up to be able to garden close to them. Yeah. Oh, that's so wonderful. Cause I, that, that's wonderful that you're doing that. And so what's the point of that? Um, you know, I think it's, it's a, it's a, something that we get a lot of questions about. Like, I want to, I want to start gardening. I want to. I'm looking for space, and so it's a way that we can like help direct the general public to um, find those resources nearest to them and connect gardeners so that we can, you know, have more networking events and things like that once we can meet in person again. Yeah, and and um, and and gardening can be so important um, at this time too. Through COVID, it was one of the. I mean, if you, you have to take the right precautions, um, but um, gardening in COVID is a is is a is a good activity. Yeah, there's a huge spike in interest this spring with gardening. I think everybody was was planting garden, new, lots and lots of new gardeners, um, and so that that really led us to to put a lot more resources up on our website. Um, and creating like a resource hub for gardeners of all types, new gardeners, plus, you know, lots of resources for seasoned people who want to try new things too. And of course, it, with it being um, mid November, mid December, it almost seems mean to talk about gardening. <laughs> but there's a lot of ways we can do gardening inside as well. Definitely. Yeah. There's, um, there's houseplants, there's microgreens, there's just tons of different options for growing inside. Talk a little bit about microgreens. Yeah, so that's the process of um, planting seeds and growing them until they're really only um, maybe to the first true leaf stage or even the cotyledon stage, so that those first couple of weeds that sprout out of the plant, you let them get that big and then you harvest them and you're able to just, you know, eat, add those to salads and um, all kinds of different, you know, you can add them to your sandwich, you can add them to your, and they take, you know, they take a couple of days to maybe a week or two as opposed to like, you know, uh, weeks and weeks to grow or even months out in the garden. Um, but you can grow them in your windowsill. They don't require, you know, added light really. Um, and right. they're just really, really easy. So things like you don't, you don't necessarily want to use like lettuce seeds, but you could use things like 
broccoli and mustard um, or any kind of like herbs work really well, um, cilantro or basil, things like that. And I know like uh, Mother Earth Gardens, a lot of places will sell nice little packages of microgreens and you can plant them and then eat them in a week. So, I mean, it's mm-hmm. and you just cut off and then this, the area that you um, harvested from, you can plant more seeds and kind of keep something so you can have just a little taste year round. Yeah. Pea shoots are my favorite. Like they're just super easy in like 10 days you have and, and they're bigger too. They get, you let them get like four to six inches tall, mm-hmm. but they taste like spring, which is perfect in the wintertime because they have that kind of like fresh pea, life-giving <laughs> taste about them. Yeah, and then um, indoor plants. Um, some people have been talking about an increased popularity of indoor plants. Definitely, yeah. We definitely see that a lot. Um, we've got some great resources up on our website for um, new varieties of, of indoor plants. We also are finding that um, as people are kind of downsizing and moving out of their uh, homes, we're, we, we get constantly get requests from people who uh, want to have, you know, help <laughs> help find the next home for their houseplants. Um, and so that's another thing that we're working on is, is working out a sort of houseplant exchange. And at this point, we're still just kind of collecting information um, in terms of, like, what people are interested. But that's, um, if people are interested in kind of putting in their two cents or getting on that list, um, we have a, a, a form up. The probably easiest way to get to it is bit.ly. It's B-I-T dot L-Y backslash plant exchange. That's great because I have I have way too many plants, and so we even moved a room in the basement, which makes no sense because we're wasting electricity to um, just light these hundreds of jade and <laughs> and aloe vera plants. And and I mean, then they're not good for the plants either; they're all way too crowded. And so um, I've you know I've been even thinking about trying to sell them or do some other you know some other way of moving them around. Um, so, um, you know, if anyone wants a very deluxe jade plant, you know, give me a call. <laughs> Let's do it that way for right now. I haven't figured it out. But um, so the other reason, uh, the other um, webinar you got coming up that I think is really appropriate uh, for our, our time is Gardening for Extreme Climate. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah so uh, Faith Applequist will be teaching that one. And she's going to talk about how um, climate change is really impacting our urban landscape. Um, looking at how certain insects and diseases and new plant material um, are, are, we're going to start seeing as sort of our, our zone five starts moving north. So as, as our climate keeps getting warmer, um, it's going to you know affect us. And so this will be a great way to find out about things to keep an eye out for and how to um, best mitigate it as well. Because I know some people were concerned with even the um, you know not, not the irregular weather, weather. Some plants seem to be blooming when it was unusually warm, and could that have damaged them in any way? You know, it really kind of depends. We we just this fall we saw we had a lot of people contacting us because you know the bulbs that they had planted this fall it was warm enough that they were starting to sprout, and people were really concerned. And um, as long as it's just the foliage, they can just kind of mulch those and. <laughs> They should be just fine for spring. Um, you know, some things, you know, if it's a fruit tree or something like that blooming early, that can really, if there's then yeah. again another early frost, that can really wipe out the So, Courtney, with the, the, the uh, Minnesota Horticulture State's Minnesota Horticulture Society, we're going to need to take a break. We'll be right back with Food Freedom Radio.
Ooh, won't you come out to play? Uh, you're listening to Food, Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headline, and on the phone right now is Courtney Cheetah. She's with the Minnesota State Horticulture Society. And uh, following, I just love that Beatles song. But uh, Courtney, is gardening also playful? Oh, definitely. It's you know, there's. I mean, that's part of why I had to grow like 18 variety tomatoes because I can't just have round red ones. I need the like striped ones that are purple and uh, yellow and orange, and I want the ones that are green and red. And I want. I mean. And, and I think, too, like, you know, going back to the beans, like the dragon tongue beans that are, like, kind of yellow with purple flecks, like, you know, that's that's so appealing and so much fun, more fun to kids than just a plain green bean. Um, so, yeah, I think that the playfulness is definitely really important. And just, you know, it's a lot of hard work, so if you can't have fun. <laughs> it, and it is, it, is, it is work, too, but it's... Uh... It's calming and grounding work. Um, you you want to talk about a book called Nature's Best Hope? Yeah, so that's my my new um, top favorite book that I'm reading right now, um, and it's really great because it kind of ties into all this what we've been talking about with climate change. Um, and his his main argument is that you know there's all these you know wild populations that are in decline because the native plants that they depend on are fast disappearing, and so the solution is really to plant more natives, and that. Even in like tiny postage, you know, stamp yards um, and boulevards, we have such an opportunity to put in more plants that can create habitat for the the, the wildlife that needs it. Um, and so it's it's a really nice kind of blueprint for you know practical small step things you can do to really make a big impact in your own yard. And if we could collectively become aware of all the damage we have done. Um, to our home, um, we are facing an insecticide crisis right now. There's, I mean, it's it, it's really hard to even fathom all that we have done to our home. Um, but then, what gives me the hope is to think of, you know, what if we could use the same tools to instead of destroy the planet and really make life sucky for everyone? What if we could like use those same tools to just really leave the world with an abundant um, world and have even more pollinators and. You know, I, 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 I think that's so important to 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 um to to activate that type of world. Definitely. Yeah. And we're we're I mean, at the Horse Society we're definitely looking towards how we can encourage people um to plant for pollinators. We have a whole like series of webinars planned for later this next spring, um in, in March on pollinators and creating pollinator habitat. So make sure to watch for that as well. And we should just give some background on the Horticulture Society. Um, tell us a little bit about it. Sure. So the Horticulture Society is a 154-year-old organization that got started here in Minnesota um, when the earliest settlers were trying to grow apple trees, and they were looking for apple varieties that would grow here in our kind of harsh winter climates and survive. And so from that, um, you know, they they the people who started the Horticulture Society were part of um, the group that uh, created the state fair. Um, they helped, you know, buy some of the land for the St. Paul campus and the Arboretum and then eventually donated that back to the, the university. Um, they, you know, as, as we've evolved through the years, we've gone from kind of um, focusing on a lot of like cultivated varieties um, and horticultural ornamental things to now we're kind of looping back around to a lot of food crops again. So it's, it's exciting times. Yeah. And so, um, we also want to talk on um, gardening for extreme climate. Taylor, what can people be doing this time of the year to prepare for gardening um, when um, summer and spring and summer start? Well, right now is the perfect time to like 
you know, pull out those seed catalogs that are starting to come in the mail and to start doing your, your seed shopping. Um, you know, the last year, like as people jumped on the, the gardening bandwagon, a lot of those seeds sort of uh, weren't as available. And so that's something to really think about now is, is planning your garden now, is getting ready to, to figure out what things you really want to grow and making sure you have those seeds um, so that you're ready when the time comes. So for a homeowner that's kind of more in the beginner phase of gardening, what steps would you suggest? Um, box gardening or something else? Yeah, you know, um, raised beds are really great because they, they, they warm up a little bit quicker in the springtime and they, they drain faster and so that, that can give you a, a little bit of a leg up. There's another process called winter sowing, which we're having a webinar on in January where you can actually take like um, milk jugs or like the, the plastic clamshells that salads come in and you can poke holes in the bottom and actually plant uh, seeds in there and then just put them outside now. So you can do that anytime between now and about April or even later. Um, and that's a way to start seeds in a way that's really easy, uh, low impact. Basically what happens is you're creating a little mini greenhouse and as soon as the soil warms up, um, so the seeds are going to, you know, you might have to add some water, but you, you leave the top off and just as it rains and, and things, but the soil warms up and then the seeds start to germinate and grow. And then by the time it's time to plant them in the, the soil, they're like the right size to do that. So that's a really fun. That's great. And I know I'm getting so upset with the single-use plastics. I just, I would like to eliminate it. But as long as there's so much of that single-use plastic, we might as well find repurposes for it. Um, exactly. So tell us about the details on that webinar. When is that? And it, it costs like $10 if you're not a member? Or how does that work? Yeah. Um, that one is, hang on, I have to pull that up really quick. <laughs> That's fine. That one is on uh, January 12th at 6.30 p.m. It's $5 for members and $10 for non-members. Great. And, yeah, that sounds so cool just to, to do winter sowing. Any other webinars that you have coming up? Yeah, there's another one on growing dahlias. Dahlias are just such a beautiful, um, mm. awesome thing to add to your landscape. So that one's coming up on the 19th of January, and that's going to be actually a lunchtime one over over the noon hour. So that should be a great great class um, that's coming up. And then we also have one, um, a tour of the, the conservation, uh, the Conservatory for Biological Sciences at the U. Um, oh. And that one's on the 22nd of January from 3 to 4. And that one is free. So you can log on and get a glimpse of what that new uh, conservatory looks like. Look at all the plants from the Southern Hemisphere. It'll be awesome when we all need like a little <laughs> mini vacation. Right. So this is the, the College of, of the This is the College of Biological Sciences at the University of Minnesota, and they opened a new um, um, what's it called? A green conservatory. It's like conservatory. A, a greenhouse. Yeah. Have they, you... they opened it like right last March? You know, when COVID <laughs> was hitting and everything closed down, so nobody's really gotten to go in there and see it yet. So this will be a great way to virtually go tour it. Do you know anything about what plants are in there? Oh, they have um, plants from all the different biomes all around the world. So they have, like, the desert biome. They have, like, the rainforest biome. They have, you know, all kinds of cool biomes. Plants are our friends. So, um, Courtney, uh, Cheetah, uh, it is the uh, last few minutes, Anything else, or last few seconds. Anything else you'd like to say? Um, I would say just, you know, that the growing is, is something that we can all do and it has such a positive impact on both our health and our mental health and our physical, you know, health that um, it's definitely such a great thing to do. So if you've been, you know, thinking about it, jump on 
and uh, we have tons of resources for you to get help get you started at the, the Horticulture Society. So check it out. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Gordon. Courtney with the Minnesota State Horticulture Society. Uh, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back with Ben from IATP. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Headland and very pleased right now to be joined with the uh, Director of Rural Strategies and Climate Climate Change for the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy, IATP, Ben Lilliston. Hi, welcome to Food Freedom Radio, Ben. Oh, thanks very much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, um, you have a, an article on eight things that you're, uh, eight policy directions that you're recommending to the Biden Harris administration. So we'll be covering that. But give us a little background on yourself and IATP before we get in that conversation. Yeah, sure. Uh, IATP has been around for more than 30 years. We're based in Minneapolis. Uh, and we were set up to really look at how uh, policy impacts farmers and rural communities on the ground and how it uh, often hurts family farmers, um, how it intersects with the environment and, and clean water, clean air, uh, and also healthy food. Um, so we do have offices in, in Washington, D.C., but we also have an office uh, in Berlin, Germany. So we we actually work at the local, national, and international level, despite being sort of a smaller organization. Uh, and I've been at IETP since uh, for a little over 20 years now. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. So in this article, you said to uh, build back better that mantra. To make that mantra become a reality, we need systems thinking. What did you mean by that? Well, um, the agriculture and food system, uh, there's a lot of different policy entry points to it. And a lot of people focus only on, say, the farm bill or just um, uh, what happens at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And the point we we're trying to make is that uh, actually we need to have a broader view and look at things like trade and how the financial system intersects with uh, our ag- agriculture system and, um, and really think about uh, – climate policy broadly and how that fits in with our agriculture and food system. So it's trying to uh, make the point that if you're in food and agriculture, um, you can't have different entry points working across purposes. They need to be aligned and kind of on the same path. Um, So if we're, um, you know, giving credit or financial loans, to one sort of type of agriculture, but our farm programs are going a, a different way, our subsidy programs or our trade policy is sending a different signal, then things get sort of confused and you're not really able to achieve the larger goals that you're trying to. And in the case of climate change, we really need to get aligned across multiple sort of entry points. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think almost all humans would agree that we want a sustainable, healthy egg system that works for people and works for the planet and has clean water and vital and thriving soil with vital life in it. And and we also know that um, to eat, um, it's better for human health if more people are eating fruits and vegetables, 
But that's not what's subsidized in the farm bill. The farm bill subsidizes corn and soy and big factory farms, which so it's it's a system that's not really working for people. It's working outside of its a, a different framework. That's right. That's absolutely right. And we would we would say it's working well for big agribusiness companies uh, because they benefit from this system, getting cheap ingredients, um, cheap corn, cheap soybeans that they can either export or turn into uh, processed food or turn into animal feed. Um, and that's it's really their system. It's not our system. <laughs> I think that, with it, like you said, I think most people would have a different set of goals for a farm program. So um, that's what we're hoping to – hopefully the Biden-Harris administration will take a, a, a different view here. Yeah, I, I hope so too. And so one of the things you said is that after in this article um, – and by the way, where can people find the article that I'm going to be referring to? Yes, it's uh, on our website at iatp.org. Okay. And you stated in that article that after four years of climate denial in the executive branch, we need to move quickly. Is there a sense of urgency to transform our egg system? There needs to be. And, you know, I think it's interesting. You see some of the things that the Biden administration is doing where they're bringing in uh, uh, sort of uh, international climate czar and John Kerry to focus on rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement and and working together with other countries. And then he's also looking at a domestic uh, climate coordinator um, that coordinates policies across different agencies and departments. And it just makes a ton of sense and is exactly what we needed. Uh, and then, you know, uh, you can see climate shaping a lot of the decisions he's making in different uh, departments. So um, I think there is a sort of a recognition among the administration that we need to move quickly. You know, the science tells us we need to really make a shift within 10 years. And in agriculture and our food system, I mean, this is a system that's been put in place over the last 50 years. So to change direction uh, is going to take uh, a real deliberate um, set of policies and approaches, and it's going to be it's going to take a little time. So we need to get started. Yeah, and you guys have been organizing rural climate dialogues in Minnesota. And I, I know one thing we've talked about here a couple times is that so many people say there's this big divide between rural and urban areas, and and I don't even know if that's a. a I think that's a, that's I think that's a false narrative. Um, I don't know if you agree that that's a false narrative. And and tell us a little bit about the rural climate dialogues that you've been doing. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a false narrative to a certain extent. Like a lot of the challenges in rural communities are very similar to urban in the sense of, you know, healthcare system not working, um, schools not working in the way that they need them, looking for childcare, um, and concern about the environment. But they sort of manifest themselves in different ways. And there are political divides, I think, that are un you know, undeniable, but um, there's a lot that binds us together, I think, um, that could really be uh, lifted up a lot more and worked on together a lot more because we are interconnected. And um, what we did in these rural climate dialogues is because uh, climate change 
in the past has been so politicized that I think it's somewhat true now, but less so. Um, it was hard to even have a conversation in rural communities about climate change because it just immediately sent people down a partisan path instead of really looking at the science and thinking through, well, what can we do? How can we take action? So these dialogues were set up to um, allow the community, representative members of the community, talk about and really understand how climate change was affecting their community uh, and what were some of the things that they could start to do to respond. And... Um, you know, people were, and we brought in a lot of local experts, so people from the community saying, whether it was um, somebody from the agriculture extension or somebody from the local university or someone from the city manager in the community talking about how weather events are affecting what they're trying to do, um, it really kind of took the political partisanship out of it, out of the discussion, and really got people, you know, Minnesotans are very interested in problem-solving and really got them into a problem-solving type of mode. And each community came up with an action plan. We did this in um, probably six or seven communities, and, and some of the discussions would have different focus, but they were in different parts of the state. So each each it also brought out how each community is dealing with different different types of issues. If you're in the northern part of the state, you know, forestry and how that's changing, what kind of fish are in the lakes, is is important if you're in the southern part of the state it may have to do with agriculture uh soil health um, dealing with flooding and that you haven't seen before so it, it it's different in each community and and that's really part of the challenge i think with climate change is that it, it it affects each state differently and then within each state each community is affected differently and when really complex problems occur it, we have almost a habit of really trying to um to oversimplify in a way that's um, distortive, that that, that, that greatly distorts the situation. Um, But I I want to quote again from your article that that you said that the massive public payouts to farmers by the Trump administration mask an increasingly vulnerable farm economy where a handful of global players are cashing in while farmers are struggling to stay on the land. Um, So talk more about the Trump's egg policies impacts on rural Minnesota. Yeah, one of the things we're really concerned about is, you know, the ag economy, like if you look at the, the, I guess you would say the dominant part of our ag economy is a lot of corn and soy. And you see that if you travel around Minnesota, uh, as well as large scale uh, animal feeding operations, um, hogs, turkeys, chicken, um, that system is very vulnerable and partly because it's so uh, concentrated. Um, but it, the other element is um, because we're producing so much, we're, we're kind of in an overproduction system where we produce more than the market can actually handle, and it's pushing prices down. So in many situations of uh, probably over the last six and seven years, we've had a down farm economy, which means a lot of uh, commodity growers, commodity crop growers, are getting paid from the market less than what it costs them to grow it. And our farm programs come in and should try to help them make help make them whole. And um, but that situation 
you, when it happens year after year after year, you, it really wears on farmers and economically, and you see more land consolidation. So farmers, they just can't keep it going. So small and mid-sized farmers leave. Larger farmers maybe buy it up from them, or maybe even you have outside investors come in and buy up land. And uh, so you have this consolidation of farmland and control. Well, what the Trump administration has done over the last uh, three years is just shovel out enormous amounts of money to keep farmers going because of this ag economy. And one of the things they did, you know, Trump got in a uh, series of trade fights with major exporters, major export partners. So China is only one. You know, he got into fights with Mexico and in fights with Canada and fights with Europe. And all those fights sort of disrupted the supply chain and affected the ag economy. So he sent out fairly significant what he called trade aid payments uh, to try to keep farmers whole. And then now the, the COVID pandemic hits. That caused a lot of other disruptions to the farm economy. Uh, and then he shoveled out even more money. So this year, they're estimating, you know, that close to 40% of farm income uh, for a lot of farmers is going to be from the government. Um, and that's what's keeping sort of our system going. Um, and Ben, we're going to need to take a break. We're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the eight areas of focus for the Biden administration. And, and I, I hope I, I want a ninth focus. I'd really like to do some solid research on where that money went and who got that money. Um, you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. Hey, Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it so welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, and right now we have a song about a food system that's killing the pollinators, uh, killing our soil, adding pesticides, um, having an unequal system where a few people get a lot of money and most people don't, and then the problem is we're growing too much food. I don't, I don't get it. How do we create a better food system? And uh, with us right now to talk about that is Ben Lilliston. He is uh, with the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy, and he recently wrote um, an article on the eight areas of focus um, he's recommending for the Biden administration to transition our farming system to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, build climate resistance, and respond to the economic challenges facing farmers. Hi, welcome back to to Food Freedom Radio, Ben. Yeah, thank you. And so the first thing you recommend is deeper investments in existing conservation programs. So tell us about that. We have pretty good conservation programs in the farm uh, farm bill, and then those farm conservation programs do different things. Some um, help pay farmers to restore farmland to some more of its natural habitat, so take some that is marginal out of production. And the other uh, programs uh, help support working farms to um, build soil health, to put on cover crops, to create buffers around water. So a lot of really good conservation programs. They're massively underfunded. The demand from farmers is way more than they can meet. And if we made a significant uptick in our investment in those conservation programs, we would see immediate benefits uh, from climate standpoint, from water quality standpoint. Um, and I think it would also help the ag economy. 
Right. And so it's even promoting um, sustainable and agroecologic um, approaches, agroecology. Absolutely. And a second recommendation is to ensure fairness in agricultural markets. What does that mean? One of the problems we have right now is that a small number of companies control nearly every sector of the ag economy. And some of those companies are global companies. Uh, so it's a very concentrated market. There's a lot of talk right now about Google and Facebook, and we need to come in and antitrust and deal with those big tech companies. It's very similar in agriculture. And when you do, we have too few companies controlling the market, it doesn't work for farmers, um, and it doesn't work for consumers. And as we saw in the COVID crisis, it doesn't work for workers in some of these processing plants. So we need to take a look at agriculture concentration, and we're calling for a moratorium on new mergers and an assessment of where, how to make these markets more competitive and what policies we can put in place to do that. I know we've heard a lot this year about dairy farmers, and we've lost a lot of dairy farmers. And I know I talked to one dairy farmer, and he was like, there used to be like five or six places I could sell my milk. Now there's only one. Yep, and, that's exactly what and then what a squeeze and what a horrible situation that puts them in. And so, um, you know, and then number three is to reform uh, broken agriculture markets to keep farmers on the land. Um, yeah, what I was talking about there uh, goes back to what we talked about earlier. Um, we have an overproduction problem. We're producing too much. And most of it is, you know, uh, people hope we will be able to export it and that would somehow bring profits down to farm to the farm level, but that hasn't played out. We need to limit production to what is sustainable under an environmental standpoint, but also help farmers um, make a living from the market and not just rely on government payments. So we're calling for a supply management type of system that's been a major push among dairy farmers here in the Midwest, um, but also for grain producers. How do we produce what we need in a way that also provides a fair income for farmers and also protects the planet. And under that third is also Justice for Black Farmers Act. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, this is an issue that we have to deal with and reconcile. Uh, Historically, African-American farmers have really been discriminated against at the USDA, so that's well documented. There's been a lot of litigation around that. And one of the ways this plays out is black farmers have been pushed off the land. Uh, they've had uh, their property challenged, particularly taking place in the South. Um, but we need to um, really think about who owns land and who has access to land. So it is extremely difficult right now for new farmers of any kind, beginning farmers, to get access to land. It's particularly challenging for farmers of color um, and so we need to really look at this question of access to land if we want to create a fair marketplace and fair opportunity. Right. And if tax farmers. dollars, if, if our tax dollars, uh, 40% of our tax dollars are propping up a certain um, land ownership system, I mean, those are that's our, our dollars. So how do we take ownership of that? Um, and I want to make sure I get in all eight. So I'm going to go kind of fast on this. But <laughs> um, but again, people can read the article directly. But number four is to uh, stop propping up factory farms. <laughs> Duh. Yeah. yeah, we have a lot. Of, you know, we continue to to build these large-scale animal feeding operations 
that have a clear record of water pollution and air pollution. And it's done uh, in a number of ways, but our, our farm policy backs loans to build some of those uh, operations. It also um, pays some subsidies for them to help them manage manure. Um, and so there's different ways that we allow this to continue to happen. We need to stop doing that. And uh, it, stop, stop doing that. And the, the Trump administration has been a, a big friend to factory farms. And you're calling for some loans to even be reversed. Yeah, it, it has been, um, but I would say it's a, been a bipartisan um, uh, put, support of factory farms. And Tom Vilsack in his previous time yeah. uh, at the USDA was also a supporter. So we need to change the mindset around that. Yeah, um, I, I want to make sure I get all eight, and then we can maybe talk about that at the end. But um, protect ag- agriculture workers is important, and then also um, recognize climate risk with financial rules, including agriculture credits. Yeah, so um, agriculture workers are not really uh, – there aren't strong protections for them and uh, in, in dealing with extreme heat and other climate-related events. So that's where I was talking about how we need to update our protection and worker protections to deal with climate risk. And on financial um, rules and regulations and thinking about finance and agriculture credit um, – we need to be thinking about how do we incorporate what we know about climate change into the type of loans that we give out and the type of access to credit that we give to farmers. We know some farm systems are more resilient to agriculture to um, extreme extreme weather events. Some farming systems um, yeah. pollute less, give off more less G- greenhouse gas emissions, and some actually sequester carbon. And Ben, we're, we're, we're done there our last few seconds. So the, the last two um, that you talk about is integrating climate goals into trade policies and rejecting carbon markets. And again, if people want to read the article directly, where would they find that? IATP.org. Are you optimistic about egg policy under the Biden-Harris administration? I think um, not really, honestly. We're going to have to push at, at every step of the way, I think, to make that administration do the right thing. I think the difference is under the Trump administration, we had no chance uh, of moving things. They were uh, basically a, a, an administration of Yeah, we have denial. to keep pushing. Now, unfortunately, we're out of time, but what a great uh, point to end on. we got to keep pushing for the world we want, a sane, kind world. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio.